0: Hey all, this is Deacon Jim Roner from Forefront Church and I'm so thrilled to be able to help us all commemorate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with not one but two amazing interviewees today. Joining me are Christine Pei and Lisa Asadilio, two members of the Pacific Asian and North American Asian Women in Theology and Ministry group, which seeks to build community and support to, to further unapologetically feminist theological space and theology for non-binary people. This interview, though relatively short, covers a whole lot of really insightful and edifying ground, including talk of Asian American liberation theology, post-colonial feminist ethics, and this idea of how white nationalism that has been tied into the building of U.S. imperialism has fed for so long just the vile and despicable hypersexualization of AAPI women throughout the generations. If you've been listening to the Forefront Conversations podcast for a while, you'll know that when I interviewed Shar Adams, I said your mind was going to be blown, and I guarantee y'all, this interview is equally as mind-blowing. Uh, do also be sure to check the show notes for links to find out more about Pan Autumn and how you can support their mission and what they're doing for the world. I'm also going to link in the show notes to an article that our executive director, Sarah New, wrote about how purity culture has Fed into this hypersexualization and anti-Asian hate crimes, not just because she also interviewed Christine Pei, but because there is a whole lot of overlap between what we are talking about today and what Sarah has written. So I hope you really enjoy this interview. I hope your mind is blown, uh, and I really hope that you dig more into Pan Autumn and help them support their mission in the world. Christine and Lisa, thank you both for um, joining me today. This is, um, I said it off mic, but this is the first time that I'm, I'm having more than one guest on this podcast. So this is um, uh, going to be very exciting for uh, for listeners, I hope. So uh, I wanted to start out with just kind of something very simple and in, 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 uh, in the background, but you are both members of um, a group of uh, Pacific Asian and North American Asian Women in Theology and Ministry, which is a, a group which um, a lot of people such as myself have been more aware of recently. But can we just kind of start with that and just talk about um, the group, sort of what the mission behind it are, why it exists, and just sort of What your goal is um, or what the goal of of the group is there?
1: Pacific Asian, North American Asian Women in Theology Ministry began back in 1984. So a group of Asian international students studying theology at graduate school in the East Coast became interested in getting together because they couldn't really see their experiences reflected in the curriculum. Um, they studied at the time. So Larry Russell, um, the late Larry Russell was a feminist theologian and she encouraged a group of um, Asian female international students to get together. And she um, opened her house in Heiford, Connecticut for this meeting. So then when um, Asian, these Asian female students gathered they felt liberated and emancipated as they shared their stories and experiences that mainstream Christian theology had neglected for a long time. So then they decided to have a regular meeting. And so at first, like Asian um, American, I forgot the exact name, but Asian Asian uh, feminist theologians group began in the East Coast. And then soon they learned that um, Asian Americans in the west coast actually they have a very active uh, group like Asian American feminist theologians who studied at major graduate schools in the west coast like already have their own like group and own meeting so that these two groups like east coast and west coast folks um, merged together and then they created a group Then they learned that Asian women's experiences are different from Asian American women's experiences. so they deliberately chose the name like Asian and Asian American women in theology and ministry. And then the group like grew again. So they started using Pacific Asian, North Asian American women in ministry and theology. And that name includes Pacific Islanders and also uh, women in Canada. so the Panada is an unapologetically feminist theological space and also theology for non-binary people. And there are multiple missions. Um, our website introduces multiple missions, but if I highlight two things, are uh, one is to educate larger, like um, theological education about creation and Asian American feminist theology and queer theology, including queer theology. And then second mission is creating network um, among these Asian and Asian American women who study queer feminist theology and practice queer feminist theology and queer theology in their respective field, either in religious education or in the church ministry. I think
2: um, it's important to point out too that Panatum, that there's a tradition of Asian uh, feminist theologians, uh, Asian-American feminist theologians, building networks transnationally um, and developing liberationist theologies um, that goes back, you know, to the 60s and 70s with Eatwat and uh, and that um, it's. Part of um, our method for building theology is like building these networks. And in a world um, that doesn't see Asian women, um, we see each other and we build power and relation and knowledge um, together communally. So it's part of a longer lineage of a transnational, transpacific network.
0: And you you also just, um, at least as of this recording, just finished up uh, an annual conference. Is there anything that you want to talk about that in the sense of things that got you excited about it, um, work or highlights or anything that just you are um, enthusiastic about in terms of the work that has been doing, that has been done inside the group and how that is going to kind of um, reach outside as well?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, we have been very active during this time of COVID. <laughs> um, I don't know how, <laughs> how we've been this active, but it really has not slowed down at all. Um, there have been multiple offerings for connection and community um, through webinars, um, publications, book projects that are um, beginning and ongoing. and um, uh, we had um, a webinar introducing Asian, um, Asian North American LGBTQ theologies um, and building those networks recently um, that I think was really groundbreaking and important. That's on our website. Um, we're creating courses um, on Asian feminist theologies that are offered for the public. So the network is growing and the community is expanding.
1: There's a conference uh, We just had a conference from... April 15 through 17. And then it was our first time to host a virtual annual conference. Um, since we emphasize like a face-to-face gathering and like in-person interaction, um, we were really sad to uh, cancel our meeting last year, but it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And at the time, like in 2020, we were kind of worried. Um, it was right before um, it was right before the major states enter the like lockdown status. And before we heard the lockdown um, of Chicago where we plan to meet, we were actually worried about like um, gathering of a lot of Asian women together in, in, when the COVID-19 just hit the country and Donald Trump routinely called it like um, China virus. Mm. So we are kind of worried and then it wasn't necessary to cancel the uh, in-person conference because like Illinois was locked down and then we couldn't really travel at the time. So then but uh, the board, uh, board members, including Lisa and myself um, so put a lot of thought about having a new form of a conference, but then we haven't really had any kind of like a virtual conference, although um, we had like webinars uh, for the past year. But then the multi-day conference was, seemed a big challenge to us. But nonetheless, um, we decided to hold a conference, and then the theme the theme for the conference was radical reimagining, fierce survivor, and collective care. And then this time we wanted to hear um, stories from Panada members, like how they have survived through COVID-19 and political turmoil, not only in the United States, but also in Asia. So then um, we use a particular method which is called collective ethnography, the term was proposed by a Vietnamese American feminist theologian Mayan Lu Tran, teaching at Garrett Theological Seminary, and her method always emphasizes that um, when Asian women tell our stories, we do not simply talk about our individual stories, we always speak with our community because we found ourselves within our communities. it was great. And then because we created a virtual space, we had a lot of participants this time. Usually, we get like we get about like between sixty and eighty people, eighty participants. But then this time we had more than hundred people, and more, like almost one hundred fifty people registered, and uh, more than hundred people actually showed up in, uh, through the conference. And then this time, um, the virtual platform allowed us to have Asian participants. So this was like a truly trans-Pacific and transnational conference where um, Asian women in Asia and an Asian woman in the United States meet together and then share our collective concerns with the particularities of our individual experiences. So I I learned that um, we successfully created a strong sense of community and also create a space for healing and rest and, and a lot of um, participants already experienced some sort of like anti-Asian racism, and then they were um, devastated by the shooting instance in Atlanta, Georgia. So this, the, the annual conference was a space for many of us to share our pain and make a um, healing journey together. So I, think we we have been talking about the importance of healing and reconciliation and anti, anti-racist anti work but then this time we tried something um in a tangible way.
0: You know I'm wondering if if you've encountered it if both of you have encountered this that you know we're, we're over a year into a pandemic now and there's these well uh, publicized um, anti-Asian hate crimes that have been you know brought to the public consciousness. In the face of all that are you actually seeing that there's more enthusiasm for connection and a stronger desire to kind of um, share these stories and build this community instead of um, kind of people getting burned out or kind of disillusioned with what's been going on.
2: I guess to me, like the the community building and the resistant voices and the work has been ongoing, you know, as long as the national project has been going. <laughs> um, and that if anything, you know, like these murders and this violence um, are more just like um, trauma triggers for communities um, that then are asked to kind of uh, speak on it in a sort of voice when a voice has never been heard Um, and so there's, um, it it is kind of a a moment of, um, there's certainly energy, um, that arises from trauma, (laughs) um, uh, around like finding one another and building spaces of healing and articulating our stories, um, and speaking back against, um, like epistemologies that erase us, um. And I think um, there's a lot of um, effort right now um, among, uh, um, you know, like activist communities and, and like um, Asian American communities uh, to, to really like um, both work internally amongst each other um, around like what does solidarity mean among us? Um, such a diverse, vast land <laughs> such a, uh, with so many, Um, interconnected but particular histories you know what does it mean to come together um, and assert a voice into um the public about uh race and racism and and it's um like forever entanglement with um u.s empire and and u.s wars um in asia and the pacific um and uh i think it's a real moment where um in the wake of violence and and in the midst of grief, um, there is kind of a a defiant voice, I would say, emerging around, um, you know, that this, these acts of violence are not exceptional acts of hate. You know, these acts of violence are connected to a long project of, um, uh, to the white nationalist domestic global uh, terror of <laughs> of um, the building of um of u.s empire and um and of, of like the white supremacist ideology um, and its relation to christianity
0: i love that answer and you you hit on, you hit on so many things that i, I eventually want to get to so I'm, I'm putting so many pins in in that answer that we will that we will circle back to but you, you mentioned particular stories um, and expertise and background so i want to I want to, you know, the listeners to kind of get to know both of you individually a little bit first. So, um, what would, what are your uh, both of your individual kind of specialties, fields of studies, the thing that you, the things that you bring to the group, that you contribute to the community? What what are what are the, some of those things that you have studied, experience that you want to kind of that you get out there as well?
1: Hi, I'm a Christian social ethicist and transnational feminist ethicist. So my academic research and teaching. Um, Revive around Christian ethics of a peace and war and taking America's wars in Asia and military prostitution industries around U.S. spaces in Asia as a, as a case study. I analyzed um, long Christian tradition of peace and war and tried to create um, alternative feminist discourse on peace and war with the emphasis on on, on, on peace because like, uh, the Christian um, ethical theories of peace, usually war and peace, usually focuses on which war is justifiable enough to fight and which war should be resisted. Um, the mainstream discourse has not really thought about the bodily experiences of people who live in war zone and mm. the, the militarized society. So I'm paying attention to the bodily experiences of women, especially Korean women who sexually cater to American soldiers stationed in South Korea, and study their social activism and their understanding of the spirituality and religion. So I'm bringing. Um, I'm I'm bringing an alternative discourse on peace and war from a transnational feminist perspective. And then another branch that I'm working on is um, transnational feminist ethics with a focus on trans-Pacific experiences. So I'm bringing an Asian and Asian American feminist theology and ethics together to think about um, transnational feminist ethics within Christianity, questioning how to incorporate transnational perspectives in our understanding of um, ethics and global politics. So usually when we talk about such as the like global ethics or global politics or transnational ethics, um, Americans, when you think about the people out there as if Americans have no problem um, inside our country, always like problems and such as poverty and gender violence and war, um, happen out there, mm-hmm. but my approach to transnational feminist ethics is um, diligently making a connection between the United States and, and the world, so thus United States is part of this global politics and have never been excluded from this global politics, and thus um, Americans can think about like a global citizenship, like a global responsibility more comprehensively and more critically. I am also
2: in social ethics, um, uh, mixed Filipino feminist ethicist, and uh, Christine pays is actually my model.
1: <laughs> She's
2: <laughs> probably the ethicist uh, beyond my advisor, Tracy West, who I've read the most. Um, and I, I have learned a lot from following her method of how she does um, Christian ethics, um, really centering um, popular resistance, um, and drawing you know theological meaning from people's daily acts of survival and, and organizing um, And I am you know my own embodiment and lineage is like deeply implica- deeply implica- implicated um, in the legacy of Christianity in the Philippines um, and in the relationship between the United States and the Philippines And um, I um, I'm working on a dissertation studying um, the theology of struggle and ecumenical women's movement in the Philippines of the 70s to 90s, um, and like studying um, the uh, studying it for the pedagogical strategies of unlearning the colonial forms of Christianity inherited and innovating new, more liberating meaning collectively, um, and you know making a case that if we want to talk about decolonizing. Christian ethics, um, and or, uh, you know, liberation, um, that mining, that there is, that we ought not erase this resistance history um, from the sites of colonialism itself. um, And that there's like, particularly women's leadership, um, that is often underappreciated, and erased in the story of uh, US missionary efforts in the Philippines.
0: Mm. And there has been a real reckoning in well I guess I should say we, we would hope that the church would would have a reckoning in a lot of uh, in in the face of a lot of stuff which has been going on in the past you know I mean generations but the last year in this country um and, and so the, there is now a lot more of a focus and, and a shift on on you know other theologies such as, you know, Black liberation theology and and, and womenist theology and interpretations. I'm curious as to if there is sort of an equivalency of that for Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, or if there even can be a a neat answer about an equivalency because of the diversity in the the Asian American and Pacific Islander community.
2: Um, It's almost, (laughs) I think uh, I want to just point again to like the, I mean, even the question, which I, uh, I understand, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like really points to the invisibility, you know, like the, the ongoing invisibility of, of Asian American, of Asia (laughs) in like, uh, us consciousness, um, is like the ongoing erasure of us empire and it's refusal to see itself. Um, so much has been done, (laughs) you know, in Asian, American liberation theology um, for decades. Um, and, um, and it has uh, often you know, been in this pattern of like being transnational and ecumenical and transpacific um, and uh, yeah. So we can call it Asian American liberation theology. Uh, we can call it Asian American feminist, Theo ethics, post-colonial. Uh, feminist ethics, Um, but much has been written, um, much has been written through uh, the Panatum Network. Um, We have several publications um, that are centrally liberationist um, in Asian American theology.
1: Well, I would just say like other, like all forms of liberation theologies are historically specific and contextual that, that makes um, that that, that creates um, this historical uh, specificity makes um, makes and creates multiple liberation theologies and yet all different forms of liberation theologies share the vision of liberation and then this liberation includes um, actually like a material liberation and liberation from on just the social structures and spiritual liberation and like um, more like a holistic understanding of liberation. So I would would say Asian, well, there is Asian and Asian American theology that is not concerned about liberation. They're more concerned about some like a cultural argument from um, Asia and Asian Americans, but um, for Panada, we are unapologetically um, feminist theologians, so we produce um, liberationist work, but then perhaps the difference between our feminist theology and other feminist theology, although we share a lot of similar methodologies such as intersectionality approach to human oppression and creating alternative discourse um, on God and Christ with emphasis on gender and sexuality, And yet our starting point is Asian and Asian American women's experiences and their political consciousness. So then we actively seek out um, solidarity with other um, racial, gender and sexual minorities to um, create like a holistic liberation from um, multiple structures of oppression and including spiritual and social and um, physical oppression.
0: So then correct me if I, if I'm wrong or if I'm misinterpreting this because I have a question here which is then sort of like, what are some examples of of how one can interpret scripture uh, you know wisdom or stories through like the lens of of one's experience as an, as an Asian American woman and it, it sounds a bit like you're kind of saying the a, a lot of liberation theology specifically when it comes to to womenist theology there there's there's a, a similar experience when it comes to reinterpretation of of Scripture is is that correct, or, or am I am I kind of making something uh you know taking something with a lot of nuance and just kind of oversimplifying it? We
1: have uh, many we have a pretty good number of Asian American feminist biblical scholars who interpret scriptures from um, from Asian American perspectives. I would say like the sexism like for example like a sexism and. Um, heteropatriarchal sexism, <laughs> sexism has multiple faces and manifested uh, distinctively within like a different context. So Asian women's experiences of uh, the heteropatriarchy might be different from like Black women's experiences and Latina's experiences of a heteropatriarchy. Although the root of oppression might be the same, such as colonialism infused with this So petri- uh, heteropatriarch- p- patriarchy. No. Um, like Jinyoung Choi, who is a New Testament scholar and teaching at Colgate Culture Divinity School, her interpretation of especially Gospel of Mark is based on critical post-colonial lens. She emphasizes um, the global power structure that um, that that oppressed uh, racial, gender, and sexual minorities, and she drew the parallel between um, the crowd who followed the Jesus in Gospel of Mark and. Um, the marginalized in the contemporary society. So she brings Asian diasporic diasporic studies and Asian American studies and post-colonial studies to interrogate the story of Mark within, um, in the particular context, uh, it's one is when Mark was written in the the first century Palestine, and then its implication to contemporary um, contemporary, the marginalized people in, in, in the world. And Gail E. is another Asian American feminist biblical scholar. She interprets um, the story, the book of Ruth. She's a Hebrew Bible scholar. So she interpreted the book of Ruth uh, based on Asian American women's experiences. And just as Ruth was hypersexualized in, in the book, um, Asian American women often experience like a hypersexualization, and then a lot of Asian women in the United States are um, first generation and they're immigrants. And then Ruth's experience as an immigrant woman and migrant worker in um, uh, in Israel can be co- can be compared to uh, Asian American women's experiences. So in 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 her interpretation of the Book of Ruth, she questions a lot of like um, the biblical meanings of home and exploitation of immigrant workers, especially female workers and how like a transnational migration um, happened in the Hebrew Bible and also in the contemporary world and how our like experience, actual experience um, Encourages, encourage us to read the Bible differently. So the, the text itself, the, so the Christian text or the Hebrew Bible, the biblical texts are not like detached from um, lived experiences of a human being, mm-hmm. but it's always like the, the text should be read as uh, the actual text experienced by people. And then this experience have changed according to different contexts and historical events and so on.
2: Yeah, I think um, it's always going to be um, particular too to which Asian woman and what is her particular embodiment and story. So like my way of doing that would be very particular um, to being a mixed race, Filipino-American who moved her whole life. Uh, and, and the kind of, um, I, um, I was thinking about um, a sermon I did, you know, I was like, so, I mean, I'm all, anytime I, I'm interpreting scripture, I'm doing it through the lens of my experience as an Asian American woman. That's never not there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I, I did the sermon a few years ago. Um, on uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, uh, where it says, from now on, therefore refuse to regard anyone from the world's standpoint. Even if we once regarded Christ from the standpoint of the world, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Um, and in that, it really, um, my, uh, it really stood out to me, this idea of like God not seeing the way the world sees and what is, um, you know, I opened with um, have you ever felt like you were being told you were something that didn't match up with who you felt yourself to be? Have you ever felt like you weren't being seen at all? Have you ever felt like you had to go undercover? Hide who you knew yourself to be because somehow who you are was unacceptable or at least inconvenient to the world. Have you ever waited for permission to be? Um, and out of that sort of like reflecting on, um, this new creation um, that emerges from a God who does not see the way the world sees. Um, I could reflect on um, the, uh, how that history, how, how invisible the Philippines is in the US and how that history is suppressed and how um, my embodiment gestures to that history that we don't wanna talk about um, and that it's not a neutral crossing. And so what does it look like to build community in the, in the form of this new creation that involves different ways of imagining, um, the boundaries between us, um, that does involve confronting the histories inside those boundaries between us. Um, so that's like how, like one way that I would approach it. I was also thinking about, um, how I think, um, there's a real desire, um, to, to kind of like trace back to our lineage and like find the wisdom um, from um, our foremothers. (laughs) Um, And I I found this Bible study um, that actually my mom had prepared uh, in the early eighties in the Philippines um, when she was part of this deaconess walkout from a United Methodist annual conference in the Philippines. And so just as another approach, just like um, finding um, wisdom from our past that we can then draw on um, uh, and um, as liberative praxis. Can I just read a little bit from from this Bible study? Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, so so last week. Something worse than a typhoon hit the United Methodist Philippine annual conference in session at Central United Methodist Church. On the first day of the conference, 47 deaconesses all rose on their feet like one body and marched out of the conference hall. Why? Because for a long time, the church would not heed their voices. And when it did, it did so as a token gesture. Whenever the issue mattered and the voices of these women became threatening, their voices were hushed, muffled, suppressed. But now things have changed. The deaconesses have grown tired of their sweet, nice, goody-goody roles. They have started to demand that when they raise their hands, it will be to vote, aye or nigh. They have begun to insist that their right to voice will be coupled by the right to vote. Enough is enough, cried the deaconesses, and they filed out of the session hall, ready to pack and leave. I was one of these 47 deaconesses who joined the walkout. In fact, I was ready to walk out even five years ago, but perhaps five years ago wasn't the time, obviously today is the right time to get up and go. And then as it proceeds, uh, it talks about like um, praxis for for, uh, biblical interpretation as like we have, one, we have to remember to start with our context and not um, approach the Bible as something that then just imposes meaning on us from on high. We get to begin with our experiences and then we bring that to the text. Um, And then it models um, looking through scripture and, kind of reading between the lines of the scripture to see the presence of women and the leadership of women, even if that's not the point of the text, mm-hmm. uh, but kind of um, yeah, reading between the lines and, and asking about um, what's also there um, for us. Um, and um, apparently at that walkout, um, my mom said that she stood up Um, as they were deliberating because the deaconesses uh, were not being given the right to vote, um, even though they were employed and appointed by the church um, and dedicated their lives to serving the church. Um, And apparently my mom said that at one point she rose and she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Citing the story of the faith of a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 but even the crumbs we are getting, you are trying to deny us. And um, there was uh, an emotional affect, you know, uh, response in that moment, even among the deaconesses. And in that moment, it didn't change the policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was another six years before they got the right to vote. But that story became a story that was told among the deaconesses that became this, um, not just, just the whole story of the walkout Um, and all the organizing that went into it um became a story of who they are um and an empowering story
0: i love what you just said and, and i i i my brain goes to to the that idea that you brought up too of like of looking what's behind the text even if it was you know not intended to be there for the people who originally wrote it canonized it put it out there um, because i know that that is something that enrages certain people like well that's not what was that's not what they intended and yet if you actually kind of really step back and think like well who are the people that are actually going to be enraged by that thought it's the people who have you know people like myself the people who have been in power for a long time who have perpetuated this idea of this is what the story is this is how it has to be interpreted um so i just i i love i love that that thought uh too of of even when it comes to something like art, like the, the uh, intention versus the interpretation, just such a a, a fascinating and empowering um, approach to something, I think. And, and we have, we have talked a, a bit um, theologically, but I mean, I mean, also you you talked about lived experiences and this interpretation. And, and when we talk about history and, and, and church history and who has been controlling it, um, I mean, in America, it's always, we, we kind of look to um, the American story and how, you know, how the founding fathers like wanted to establish this, this nation with religious freedom, but then even stepping back that it's, it's a very Eurocentric story and a very Eurocentric interpretation. Um, but I, I, I want to hear more about sort of um, Asian American or, or Pacific Islander um, uh, contributions to, to the story of the church and how, and how the, you know, how their, their contribution is, is significant and important to how the church has, um, developed as well in ways that the mainstream church is not really acknowledged or, or looked upon. Um, hopefully there was something in there of a question that sort of made sense to respond to
1: a lot a lot of <laughs> contribution. So let me just put that contribution in this way. So, um, the pan african theology and other um, Asian and Asian American liberation theologies, I believe that um, have been redeeming Christianity from multiple forms of evil. As we know, um, the European colonialism was inseparable from Christianity, especially with the ideology of Christian triumphalism Mm. and Christ's ultimate victory over evil. So non-Christians and people of color were perceived inferior um, than their white counterparts. And then Christianity justified this form of um, mass killings of indigenous people and conquest of um, Pacific islands, and wars in um, East Asia and Southeast Asia, and also the slavery system too. And Asian um, Asian American feminist theology with other forms of liberation theology, we continue to challenge uh, the mainstream Christians, in this case, like white Christians, to critically reflect on their understanding of Christianity and their experiences for Christianity. then in that way, like Christianity, if Christianity like, or Christian church feels too comfortable within this um, power hierarchy, I feel like um, that, that comfort will ultimately lead Christian church um, to the deep corruption. So the constant, like the, so these liberation theologies including um, Pan-Adam theology constantly challenges um, Christian church to reflect on their interpretation so that the Christian church does not stay in the status quo but always challenges itself. And then by doing that, um, the Christian church can redeem itself from like intellectual arrogance or unconscious racism or like different forms of social sin. So they can really live up to the vision of um, kingdom of God. and think about um, the the vision for the kingdom of God in in the contemporary world.
2: Yeah, it's hard to know what is the starting point to answer the question because (laughs) it's so vast. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think um, a really important thing, um, kind of reading between the lines of the question um, is like that Christianity cannot be understood apart from empire. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, panadam um, like a lot of our work is about, um, decolonizing the tradition in order to preserve what is liberating, um, and live what is liberating and saving the seeds and kernels of truth in the Christian faith. Um, not so much the Christendom, uh, the political domination, but the religious aspects to it, um, because religion and empire colluded with each other. <laughs> I think, um, you know, we, we definitely need to question the premise that church history is your was ever Europe-centered. Um, that, uh, you know, it was the period of expansion um, and evangelical mission with the expansion of empires uh, when the religion of those empires were then brought to their colonized peoples. And that's how it became Europe-centered, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there's a strong tradition um, in India, you know, that Thomas, actually introduced Christianity in India and the Maratoma church exists based on that tradition. Um, and, uh, you know, and then the, the Nestorians uh, brought Christianity to China in the period of the Tang dynasty in 635 CE. Uh, you know, there are these lineages that are, that are lived theologies. Um, and, and yet um, we are, you know, our, Epistemic vision is colored so deeply by the imperialist incursions, um, the colonial relationship between empire and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, so when we talk about the integration, um, I think the end of your question was what are some examples uh, that demonstrate the importance of this integration? Mm-hmm. Um that is the integration, is the history of empire, <laughs> the <laughs> colonial relationship. Um, and that, you know, we must question the premise that. Uh, church history was ever Europe-centered.
0: And, and I did want to pivot a little bit uh, because you, you've you both mentioned um, empire, imperialism, and uh, a way that empires spread that colonies and colonialism establishes a lot of times through um, military might. And Christine, you mentioned this a, a little bit earlier in, in, in the interview, but this idea of um, the influence of U.S. military bases in Asian countries and where we're over about a month removed from the Atlanta spa shootings. And um, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to this idea on how um, how this US military presence in these countries kind of feeds into this idea and this perpetuation of kind of a hyper-sexualized image of, of Asian Americans, because um, that, that was one of the, the unfortunate aspects of all this news coverage was speaking about this idea and the implication of like, well, how was how sex involved with what this, this awful person ended up doing?
1: Well, the, the hypersexualization of Asian women can be traced really, really long time ago, even before Asian uh like Asian American American soldiers arrived on Asian soil. Um, it's, if you think about the Puccini's opera, the Madame Butterfly. That is European fantasy about the Japanese women, and then even though the geisha does not sell sex to um, clients, still like Madame Butterfly portrays Japanese women as, as a sex worker and really sexualize um, sexualize and also sexu- they could portray the Asian woman as sexually submissive and and like a pure and innocent and who can be easily manipulated by like white men. Yeah. And the America's military presence became more distinctive since World War II. And I feel like American soldiers, when, when they American soldiers brought their fantasies about Asian women with them when they went to wars and different like a conflict zones in Asia. That, that's my theory. And it, even like if we, we look at the history of Asian American immigration, at the turn of the 20th century, the US government barred um, Asian women from entering the United States to control the population. So at that time, a lot of like Chinese male workers um, entered and working in different, um, working in um, landmine, and and railroad and and many parts of America, and yet the the Asian women uh, could not enter, so like a a small number of Chinese and Japanese women were lured to prostitution, and then they were smuggled into the United States, so that when these immigration officers at that time, like, quote Asian women, they were prostitutes. So they had this strong sense, the historical sense that Asian women were already sexualized and they were also prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And the American soldiers back in um, the, during the World War II and then the Cold War period, they had this mindset when they went to um, Japan, the Philippines and Korea and Vietnam and Mm -hmm. many parts of um, Asia. So then in, in case of Korea, uh, during the Korean War, um, it's it, it, it kind of long history because <laughs> military prostitution around the US bases began back in 1945 in South Korea. In 1945, Korea won independence from um, it, Japanese empire. And then many people now know about the Japanese military comfort women system that recruited Chinese, Japanese, Filipinas and Korean women to sexually cater to Japanese soldiers. So when when American soldiers arrived in um, Okinawa and Okinawa, Japan and South Korea, they did not abolish this comfort woman system, but they kind of inherited it to entertain their own soldier. So since then, the military prostitution industries around US spaces have existed in Korea. And sometimes it was, it was, the, the, the industries were really prosperous during the Vietnam War. And then now the, the industries are declining. As American soldiers now can freely like, travel to large cities in Korea. And also uh, Korea's economic development enable many like women to find different jobs rather than sex work. And yet um, there are like tons of uh, studies about it. Um, so in, in, during the Korean War in 1950s and 60s and 70s, like American soldiers uh, could not meet like other local people besides like uh, prostitutes. So mm-hmm. they thought that all Korean women were sexually available or they were prostitutes. So in, in Vietnam, during the Vietnam War, it's a kind of the same situation. They couldn't really need like, like local people um, except for prostitutes. So they thought that like all Vietnamese women were also prostitutes and um, sex workers. So they had this um, prejudice on Asian women. Um, they also brought this prejudice with them when they came home. Um That during the Cold War period, a lot of Asian women came came to the United States through marriages with American soldiers, and then um, in 1996, two Asian American women made a documentary film about these, like uh, uh, the Asian. Asian military brides who came to the States through marriages with American GIs. Mm -hmm. And they learned that 80% of marriages between soldiers and Asian women end up in divorce. And then obviously these women, uh, when they arrived in the United States, they experienced racism and sexism and misogyny. And on top of that, they were constantly viewed as sexually corrupted, wild Asian women who tempted Um, innocent young American men. So you can find that it's the same rhetoric in Robert Long's words. Um, he had to kill this Asian woman because of his sex addiction. So he had to eliminate it, these temptress. And that rhetoric has existed um, and has existed throughout like the Cold War period and even until now. Well, yeah, US military played an important role in constructing um, anti Asian racism with we, we, we focus on particularly like a hyper of Asian women. And I just keep thinking about um, whether it's possible to stop anti Asian hate without like demilitarizing Asia Pacific, um, without like bringing American troops back home from Asia Pacific. And then the current um, escalated tension, the escalated military tension between China and the United States only perpetuates the hypersexualization of Asian women and anti Asian racism at the same time.
0: That makes a, a ton of sense um, in, in regards to how a, a system is created and then perpetuated and what feeds into that. Now, when it comes to America and, and kind of the American church's response to what happened, in Atlanta, how, how do you kind of see, like, even, even the church's approach to sex and sexuality feeding into that response? And, and I, I don't necessarily mean what would cause this, you know, this perpetrator to do so, but, but, but more in, in what exists within the church and within America to, so where so much of the response um, and so much of the coverage comes down to um, you know sex work and temptation around sex instead of focusing on the victims more of just like you know um, more of the focus on um, kind of sex uh, and, and and temptation with like this negative stigma because I see I see a lot of like when it comes to women's uh, liberation theology a lot of that is also tied into or there's a connection to um, purity culture as well and trying to and, and you know wanting to separate from this idea of, um, sexual purity, and specifically when it comes to women being sex objects, and kind of um, taking onus away from, uh, you know, men.
1: But Christian theology is like a really—it's—it's it, it's interwoven with the whole like a hypersexualization of Asian women, and then when it comes down to like sex, sexuality, and and gender. So like some um, f- feminist theologians such as Vira Nakishima Bragg in Panaram and Sujan Thysoswai, a white feminist theologian, they wrote a book together, "Testing Stones back in 1996. And then they researched prostitutions in Asia and America. And then they learned that um, the Asian woman's body and also like a woman's body in general having been routinely used to maintain military morale and militarized masculinity. So even though like um, American soldiers might not have been interested in um, having sexual relations with any woman even people joining, joining the military. So the, the institutionalized military conditioned the soldiers to engage um, buying sex from women and also um, feminizing enemies and like using sexual slurs to de- dehumanize like their enemies. And like both Brock and this is why it argue that the military training is based upon knos- knosistic tendencies of Christianity. And then the body should be separated from spirit and then soldiers must trained um, train to discipline their bodies. And then the body and sexuality were completely separated from the spiritual realm. So this separation um, is not new in the Christian Church because, uh, like the, the Christian theology, has been very um, accustomed to um, thinking about body fully uh, in separation from um, our spirit. So then the military training intensifies this um, separation. So, it's so for them. Um, it's it's somehow normal for American soldiers to use um, the female body to boost their masculinity, and also Christian Christian Church because of its theology uh, marked with body negativity and sex negativity, experienced difficulty to criticize systematic like prostitution or. sexual exploitation that happened inside like military prostitution industries. And in in that sense, sex in general is a taboo topic. We don't really talk about it in the church. Even it's hard to talk about in the classroom of Christian theology, theology Theology too. So we don't have much space to um, critically interrogate the relationship between like sex and sexuality, and like a Christian theology, and then the Christian church is not really equipped, intellectually equipped, with um, engaging um, the conversation around um, sex, gender, and sexuality.
2: Yeah, the just like this economy piece, you know, that like how the hypersexualized image is also connected just with like this perception of the Asian woman's body as here and available for consumption in whatever way the system needs, be it global um, capitalism or the military. Um, And, you know, like we know that the shooter was active in an evangelical church. I think he was Baptist. Um, He said he had a sex addiction. Um, Many in the evangelical world connect that with, uh, recognize it as coming out of this purity culture. and I just, you know, also want to add this piece around global capitalism um, and the, the fact that like under our current system of global capitalism, it requires that poor women of the global South, poor invisible Asian women not be considered within the realm of human moral worth, com- you know, just that our bodies are disposable. And, um, you know, I just think about like the, um, the Colin Kaepernick moment when Nike aligned with the Black Lives Matter movement using Colin Kaepernick's face. And it was like um, this kind of like moving moment of, you know, and the fact that simultaneous to that, um, you know, Nike is like funding (laughs) the Republican (laughs) uh, government and and that all over the global South, particularly in Asia, their factories are paying women poverty wages, even though they can clearly afford to pay more. You know, they refuse to collectively bargain with trade uners, uh, unions. Um, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, um, despite worker grievances, uh, issues are not addressed. And um, you know, for Nike to produce the products and profits at the scale that it does requires that the world not think about certain laborers, certain faces, certain people, we have to accept the reality that there are uh, these institutions in place that guarantee that these faces don't enter our conscious minds and that the lives of certain poor South and Southeast Asian women do not matter um, and, and matter only insofar as they keep working um, in under these completely exploitative conditions. Um, and that also feels so deeply connected um, to... The Atlanta murders.
0: How do you both feel about the conversations that have been taking place now um, around these, uh, around what has been happening with um, anti-Asian hate crime, and and I mean sort of outside of of your communities as well, because um, you know, Asian hate crime is there, these these are not new things that have been going on, but they've been getting more news attention recently, and um, but you know even. Like I said a month removed from the uh, Atlanta spa shootings at least mainstream media has sort of moved on from it and we, we've sort of uh, encountered something similar to this like last summer with a lot of the black lives matter protests you know you couldn't find um a bookstore around that had you know um how to be anti-racist or the new Jim Crow in stock because people were buying them up um and yet then it sort of seemed like eventually we sort of you know the conversation maybe moved on a bit and maybe that's an incredibly cynical approach for me to take and maybe cynicism is a privilege to, to have, but just um, what are your, how are you feeling about the kind of conversations and, and the sort of, um, you know, support that has, has um, risen around these, these, uh, these events?
2: Well, I think um, it sort of ties back to the the first question. Um, You know, this work, has been ongoing um and then and there was like a brief moment of visibility um in the wake of traumatic violence um and that um that really um it's (laughs) it's on us uh well it's on all of us to show up in this moment um in ways that are a lot deeper even than like the framing around hate or kind of like seeing these um this rise in, in, hate crimes under COVID and anti-Asian hate crimes, um, just seeing them as crimes or seeing them as just hate crimes that are kind of like exceptional in the longer history of, um, of the U S, um, kind of white supremacist global capitalist project, um, that we need to deepen our, our analysis, um, as, uh, and, and, like, as in, like, stop erasing the histories that led us to this moment um, and confront them um, and refuse to see these acts of violence as exceptions um, and aberrations, um, but as deeply rooted in the history of race um, that has produced um, our understanding of of knowledge in this country um, and our understanding of Christianity and Christian theology. Um, So I think, um, you know, there are certain organizations um, that have like Red Canary Song, Asian Prisoner Support Committee, um, Butterfly, that have emerged with activist framings that refuse to, you know, call for more police, that refuse to um, that center sex worker justice, um, Asian-Black solidarity, um, radical feminist approaches, and that like, uh, that they lead the way um, in this moment, and that we deepen our understanding of what's happening um, by learning the history of what got us here.
1: I, I'm very hopeful these days <laughs> because the the AAPI hate did not start with COVID nineteen. It existed. It has existed since the foundation of this country. Or even Erica Lee, um, the Asian American historian, argues that like um, Asian America uh, has existed long before America was conceived as a nation. So. I think about this long history, and sometimes I wonder whether the current um, anti-Asian hate crime is worse than those crimes that happened in early 20th century and during World War II. Um, Japanese and Chinese Americans were literally killed by killed and lynched by like white supremacists, and then violence and death were ubiquitous in those Asian Americans' lives. But um, Throughout American history, Asian-Americans have survived and we are surviving. And even like during this COVID-19 period, we are surviving and not only surviving, we also actively resist anti-Asian racism and report um, the anti-Asian incidents and try to record our stories and try to educate the entire um, American public on, on this issue. I find a lot of hope, but at the same time, um like going back to your question about pure evangelical purity culture before I feel like that evangelical purity culture is a kind of Christian laziness to find answer to the complicated social problems with the one easy way so social problems have been always complicated even the Atlanta spa shootings are involved in like um, evangelical purity culture, and gun violence, and white supremacy, and hypersexualization of Asian women, and poverty, and the, the uh, hospitality work, workers' condition, and all these complicated issues should be considered instead of just singling out like purity culture. So right. in, in that way, I hope um, the Christian church um, is ready to dive into the complexity of the social issues instead of just uh, um, giving one answer, like one solution for all problems, <laughs> because human problems are more complicated than we can think. Just as God is more complicated than we think.
0: And that's that's a a good segue into just the the last question that I had for you both, which is broad, kind of general, maybe you know the there's. Well, well, not even maybe, there are plenty of books, I'm sure that could be written on this question itself, but just what does the church need to do, churches need to do, church members need to do to support AAPI communities? And, and that could be anything you think of, whether it's, it's um, granular on the ground sort of action or even just grandiose changes that, that need to be made. I mean, what, what do we need to do Um, to better support these communities?
2: Um, I really appreciate Christine bringing us back to hope. Um, And I think that that, um, you know, um, is a discipline. um, And I wanna share just a couple words from, um, so one of the women that I interviewed for my dissertation, um, Norma Doliaga. Um, is a United Methodist deaconess and a human rights activist in the Philippines. And, um, you know, we have survived, you know, as Christine said, that that sort of like rings true the whole history of colonial Christianity um, from the moment of its inception. So she says, the tradition of women rising up in the midst of patriarchal structures and imperialistic bondage that has been built through centuries Will not betray the hope that has been bestowed upon us. We claim the gift of resistance and the ability to defy forces that impede us in the struggle for liberation. Um, and I also just remember uh, my mom. What my mom said the other day <laughs> uh, when I was asking her about the role of hope in the movement, um, and she said, "I think it's a luxury to give up. It's not an option. Otherwise, Walana." Well, That means no more, it's over. Hope fuels the movement because it has a goal. And the goal, the hope is to reach that goal. With Duterte, who's the current president in the Philippines, it's still the same, evil. To resist evil and tyranny and injustice, you cannot give up hope. You must struggle. You must continue to fight. That is why you are human. That is the human spirit. Um, And uh, so when I think about um how can churches show up what's the role of the church um you know i imagine the church as the body um and and whenever i think about um solidarity i think about the quote by lila watson um where she says if you've come here to help me you are wasting your time but if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine then let us work together um and so i might for the church i might just add, um, you know, if you've come here to help me, you are wasting your time, but if you have come because your salvation is bound up with mine, then we can work together. Um, I really see um, that not as, not as like acts of charity, not as like acts to figure out how to be a good Christian, um, but kind of a deeper understanding of what it means to be a body and a deeper sense of um, a bound up salvation with others.
1: Yeah, Lisa already said it beautifully. I don't know what I what, what I can add. <laughs> That's the um, one, um, not an advice, but one one just a comment on the Christian Church. Whenever the Christian Church talks about the crisis, they only um, they tend to focus on um, the losing membership in their in their churches. But then the Christian Church can radically be imagined. What growth really means, like what spiritual growth really means. And if they were called to be light and salt in society, then what kind of actions they can take? Um, So it's, I don't know, I feel very conflicted in many ways because I'm an Episcopal priest. And then when I think about the institution of the Episcopal church, Yes, the church is losing membership and then the church is still white centered like many other churches. And it looks like only the fundamentalist churches uh, gain more members, especially during COVID-19. So I kept thinking um, what the Christian church has been missing when we live in society. And so it's... It's my 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 thoughts are, um, are not organized right now, but it's it's like, um, radically reimagining the kingdom of God is not only like a progressive Christian church's responsibility. Like all Christians should think about what it means to create the kingdom of God on earth and what what, the, what what like God's radical equality really means and and I guess that can begin with um, yeah, they can they can begin with um, those who are different from my own background and those who suffer from white supremacy and poverty. So the church I, 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 my hope is like church uh, the church, Christian church, finds a new way to stay connected to the marginalized and, um, uh, and then they are willing to be one of the marginalized.